Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, um, for the purposes of this show, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. Yeah, and there's no wrong way to spell it. Every spelling of Rockmeister McCool is correct. So uh, here at We've Got Mail, we answer your emails. Our listeners are kind enough to write in with their uh, questions critiques, suggestions, asking us for suggestions. Uh, we're, we're kind of an open book. We try to answer as many as we possibly can. If you want to write into the show, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We will credit you by whatever you sign off as. And uh, I think those are the rules. That's it. That's pretty much it. Oh, and uh, if you happen to email us while we're recording the episode, we have to read it. Of course, we record at sort of random times on very random, random days. Very so random, weird times. It's just going to be a matter of chance. Yeah, it's, it's Unfortunately, not like, you can't plan this sort of thing yeah. because we don't plan these. Like, I know. They're probably recording Wednesdays at 9 p.m. We've done that like once. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, it, it's all over the place. We're doing it on a day we almost never record right now. So uh, my point is this. Right whenever you feel like it, you never know. Yeah, and if, if my phone buzzes, I'll read that letter. Awesome. So, uh, uh, Whitney, let's kick it off with our first letter. Here's a letter from Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm listening to your most recent episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, and it did spark a question for you two. Clearly, you take much fr- pride in your film collections, hmm. which is fair and well-deserved. But I'm curious if there is a box set that got away. <sighs> Uh, I can give an example from my experience. I was working for HMV, a music and movie retailer founded in the UK, but also exists in Canada. We had a single copy of Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail 40th anniversary set come into the store. And I vowed to buy it after my next paycheck, but it was sold before I could get it. What made this anniversary edition so special was it came with a handful of plastic farm animals... And the box could expand with the use of an ela- with elastic, and you could catapult a cow over the walls at some presky British knights, <laughs> whose, whose parentages may, may have been a hamster. The knights were not included. <laughs> like a little, oh, that's fun. Like little I think I cows actually, I, you could I, launch I, I, over. I actually have that edition. Oh! I'm, very, no, I'm not trying to brag, but I do have, no, I'm not trying to brag. I just, it's a cool mm. edition, and I was able to get that one. Mm. There's also a ton of stuff I never got, so, well, we, yeah. yeah. Um, a second copy never came back in stock, and I cannot find it anywhere. Well, oh. talk to William. Maybe he'll sell you his copy. Oh, uh, so, is there a collector, a collection, or a box set you coveted, but due to scarcity or cost, you have never been able to acquire? I look forward to hearing your future episodes. Hopefully, that pe- pesky thing that pumped the brakes on your regularly scheduled pos- podcasts has been fixed. Sincerely, Jeremy. Uh, yeah, to address that elephant in the room, last week uh, we had to sort of put some of our podcasts aside for a bit uh, due to some practicalities of podcasting. When you have a podcast, uh, you uh, basically like rent space on a podcast server. And uh, we pay a certain amount every month in order to... To get a finite amount of space. To get a finite amount of space. And we're actually at one of the sort of upper tiers available at Libsyn, where we uh, host our podcasts. But there are limitations. And uh, in the pandemic, we've been trying to uh, increase our output for a variety of reasons. One, it keeps us sane. Two, it keeps people entertained. And Mm. three... We're workaholics. It's actually not very healthy. But (laughs) uh, but, so we, we ran out of space. 
basically. And so that's caused me to look into some other ways uh, in order to maybe compress our file sizes without sacrificing much in the way of quality. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to look into that and find a way to prevent that from ever happening again. Um, but yeah, t- Whitney, are there any box set? Uh, uh, the Your Critically Acclaimed podcast he's referring to um, uh, was uh, one in which uh, we were asked to talk about the jewels of our physical media collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney had Whitney's was a VHS, mine was a laserdisc, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and also the ones that were mm-hmm. sort of embarrassed to own, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually really fun, and it actually caused me to sort of like look over my physical media collection and sort of like yeah, take find, stock, find, find the fun stuff. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, what 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 is oh, it? Oh God! Don't, well, uh, when DVDs first came out, they started releasing a lot of DVD box sets, and they were too expensive. I could never afford them. The one I really coveted was the Universal Monsters box mm. set. Uh, but as I've said before, the first edition of those Universal Monsters box set, it was just one movie per box. Mm. And then when Van Helsing came out, they reissued them all, but with the sequels in the boxes. So it's actually kind of a superior so edition. It was, yeah. yeah, So and I ended up getting those, and then they eventually did that same thing on Blu-ray. And I got the Blu-rays, but the box was so badly made. Oh. Universal is evidently really horrible about their packaging. I think all of the, the Back to the Future movies are just packaged really badly. Yeah, they're using these and really the, thin slipcases, and it's very easy to damage the desk. Yeah, and uh, the the Universal Monster Blu-rays were folded into these little envelopes that were two card pieces of cardboard glued together with a space left for the disc to slide in between the two pieces of cardboard. Yeah. But clearly the glue wasn't protected. It, like, there was no barrier between the glue and the disc. So if you left it on a shelf long enough, it would just sort of sink into the glue. So you had to pry it out, and uh, that glue didn't come off the disc. The disc was oh, ruined. Oh, that sucks. So every single one of those discs was ruined in that Blu-ray set. I had to throw it away. I, I bought uh, – it was a gift for somebody. Mm. I bought uh, the Astaire Rogers DVD set. A very Ooh, nice, nice set. Okay. Every movie Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers ever did together. Mm. Lots of special features. Really, really nice. I gave it to them for – I think it was a Christmas gift – and they opened it, and it was like, ooh. And then we found out that half the discs were missing. Oh, no. This was not a used edition. Mm. So I'm like, oh, that sucks. And I had to, like, send it back in to where I bought it from. And I got a, I got a package in the mail, like, a week later. I'm like, wow, they are fast. Mm. And then they sent it back to me, said, we cannot accept this return because some discs are missing. What? And I was like, that's the reason why I had to return it. <laughs> what? took like six months to get the damn thing replaced oh, and because the second time they sent it to me that version had discs missing too so i guess it was like a larger oh, issue God. okay that one sucked but um regarding uh, uh like dvds or whatever that i missed two things come to mind one there was an edition of fargo and i think it might have even been a vhs edition that came with a snow globe that was okay, like a yeah. leg going into like a the wood, uh, chipper, the wood yeah. chipper. It was the whole scene. It was yeah. uh, Peter Stramare and Francis Dormand in the leg. Yeah, and then if you shook it up, there was snow, but there were also little blood particulates mm. as well. I always wanted that snow globe. That thing was cool. Um, but the other one was there was a box set of a Satoshi Khan anime series called mm. Paranoia Agent. I've heard of that. Paranoia Agent is it's a it, we can't cover it on cancel too soon because it was very finite. It was like six episodes and was always intended to be six episodes. It wasn't canceled. It just mm. ended. As far as I'm concerned, Paranoia Agent is right up there with like The Wire as one of the great artistic achievements of television of the 2000s. It is an absolutely like breathtaking, unique, fascinating story. Um, without giving too much away, uh, it's about. 
uh, a serial bludgeoner. Yeah, they, they, they don't uh, they don't kill anybody, mm-hmm. but they roll up uh, next to them on rollerblades and they beat them with a baseball bat. And the idea oh, is fun. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. But yeah. like the idea is this person, and it's hard to say if they're like uh, just a person who just has a grudge or some sort of just dangerous individual, or if maybe they represent more than they actually like seem to be on the surface. Um, basically, what happens is they come along at a time in a person's life where like having an excuse to exit their life. And like just like be in a hospital is actually welcome. Hmm. Like people are going through such extreme situations that to have this enormous like tragedy happen in their life hmm. is actually a it's a mixed bag. And it's all about how people sort of make excuses for themselves and how we're constantly looking for any excuse to back out of our lives. Yeah, and that's actually it, I, I'm pitching it really badly because it's it's another one where it's like it's a vague pitch, uh-huh. uh, but it's actually really psychologically complicated and really exciting and you know dark and fascinating and it expands in a way you never expect and that box set of DVDs is basically dead. Like I was able to. What happened was they released like disc one. Uh-huh. With like a box set, and then you would buy the other discs and put it in the box set, which is actually just kind of a fucked up way of not giving you a box set. But now they're all like wildly out of print, and I don't have them all, uh-huh. and it sucks. And I really wish I had it because that's that's a great set. They also had. Um, I was really bummed out because there was this one. There's this one figure in the show called I think it's called a Mellow Maromi, which is kind of like a, a weird, creepy, depressing version of Hello Kitty. Right. And they made them, and you could like buy them. But by the time I was like going to comic book conventions or whatever, the paranoia agent wave had ended, and now you can't find that shit anywhere. Uh-huh. No one has it. And I would, I looked on eBay, and I'm constantly just like, where can I find a Mellow Maromi? No idea. But uh, so those are the things that come to mm-hmm. mind. But you know, you live long enough, you're going to see just you know editions come and go, covers come and go. Yeah, there are still some out on the market that I'm I'm looking to get, like mm. the Zatoichi box set on Criterion. It's great. That's yeah. still in the market. I'd like to get it uh, as a birthday gift for myself. I got the Bergman box. I'm, I'm 39 Ingmar Bergman films in one place, all on Blu-ray. I'm fine. Now. I'm not even that big a Bergman yeah. fan, and I'm still jealous because that's a hell of a set. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. one. That is a feather in I, your cap to own that set. That. And my BBC Shakespeare editions, yeah, like those, one. those were two, like two of my biggest, crunchiest, fanciest video. Homes I, I own the Zatoichi set. Uh, that's probably my crown jewel. That's, I, I that's do like, like twenty three. Something I'm jealous of in your collection is you have the Predator head. Yeah, it's, it's just like it's just Predator one and two, right? No, it's actually just Predator one. It's just Predator one, but yeah. it's, it's a full size, life size bust. Yeah. Of the creature from Predator. I always wanted, because they used to do this more often, where there would be like these, we're going to put all the well, Planet of the Apes movies I in was gonna, Apes head. I was going to mention that. Yeah. So my favorite ones are the ones that have such interesting packaging that you kind of have to put it in a rarefied spot. Yeah. It doesn't just go on your shelf. Uh, so there was the Predator head. Mm-hmm. The Planet of the Apes head. It had real hair. Yeah. So this real ape, like... Not life-size, but it was like a miniature ape head. And, Close enough for and, government yeah, work. Head and yeah. shoulders as a bust. And you could like twist the bottom and pull out this big, long core of discs. Yeah. And it was every uh, Planet of the Apes movie and TV series that had been made to date. Which is including a really Including the cool animated set. show. That's so, a really yeah, cool set. It's a really cool set, and I never got it. And you know, I, I ended up seeing it like at a used video store at some point. But it, at that point, Blu-rays had already come out. And at that point, you have to start making a decision. Do you get it on DVD because it's cheaper? 
or do you hold out for the more expensive, better quality Blu-ray? And that's just, that's a, just a, a decision up, to, make. up to you. And uh, yeah, there was not. another one where they uh, released all of the Futurama episodes in a big bender head that oh, I yeah. never got it. I would love to there have was, the bender the head. The one that baffled me was they put out one that was the head of the robot from iRobot. And I'm like, who's demanding that? <laughs> I there's a demand for like a limited edition, super cool Planet of the Apes head. There's a mm. demand for a Predator head, which is like the only one of those I've ever bought. Hmm. I saved up for it. Like, it was like a special edition Comic-Con thing. I was going to Comic-Con anyway. I waited in line. I paid for the fucker. But there's only one disc in there. There's only... It's just for the... It was just... And it was the 3D release of Predator, which is actually like... Kind of like overly sharpened, so it's not the best DVD edition. Oh, so I just got it for the Predator head, but that's a life-size Predator head with a mm. removable mask. I used that mask in a Schmodown intro once when I just uh-huh. did, like, I was running out of ideas and they just needed me to come in like... I, oh, I thought it was coming in Saturday. You need to be coming now? Shit, I don't have an entrance, so I just grabbed the Predator mask and said, can you just, like, pop me in there? It's as though I was invisible. And they were like, sure. And that's how I did that. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's one of the a, cooler things I got. There was a box set. Uh, Universal did this. I think most of the studios actually did this as they rolled around on major anniversaries. Yeah. Uh, the 10th anniversary yeah, or 20th uh, anniversary. Universal had a 100th anniversary box set. Oh, and it yeah, was, I remember that. Universal picture is 100 Universal pictures going back to their inception and the stuff that they're typically the most proud of. Yeah, like the big award winners, big blockbusters. And the clever thing about those box sets is you're looking at these 100 movies. It's like, well, I own 20 of these already because they're usually very popular movies. So you're always going to be rebuying something in these big box sets. But is it worth it to have all the extra ones? Like I own 20, but I don't own 80. Do I want to shell out for these giant boxes? Uh, there are a lot of really wonderful boxes. Oh, you know what? One that I always wanted to get and I never did. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because now they're doing all of David Lynch's movies uh, in the Criterion Collection. Mm. You can get them all cleaned up on Blu-ray. Uh, Mulholland, Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet, uh, Twin Peaks, and Eraserhead and the Elephant Man are now all on Criterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe something else I'm forgetting. Uh, but David Lynch was putting out his own videos for a second. Oh, yeah. And uh, he still owned the rights to his short films and to Eraserhead, and he put those out in these really obnoxious boxes that didn't fit on shelves. Uh, did you ever see the Eraserhead box that David Lynch put out himself? Like, it no. wasn't available in storage. Oh, wait, yes. Yeah. Yes, I do, because I was actually working to... at a video store, and that came out, and they bought one so that they could resell it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just so they could have it on the shelf. So, like yeah, a Christmas you, you'd item. sort of slide it out of a, a paper case, and the disc would be settled in these big cardboard rings, and you'd open it up, and then you realize that the, there was nothing in the box. It was just this big, empty space. Mm-hmm. So it, it seemed kind of useless, but it was this rare thing that uh, mm-hmm. was the, the best quality disc yet. Yeah. And I ended up getting that eraser head, and I ended up selling it too because oh, no. the, the Blu-ray was just was just so much better. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, I thought. But he put yeah. he put out uh, something called the lime green box. Do you remember the lime no, green no box? The, it was one of the only ways you could get the Elephant Man on DVD at the time. Uh, let me look up some details about the lime green box. Uh, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was just all of David Lynch's movies in one place for the first time. Cool, uh, and. Oh, it was, it was also one of the only places you could get Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, his stage performance, oh, on yeah. DVD. I've been looking for that for a while, actually. That's yeah. one of the few David Lynch things I've never seen. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, I'm yeah. sure it is. I, you know, I, there, I bet there's a reason why it's not talked about more often, but it's still like to see it. Um, well, you're talking about that. There's one more, and then we should move on to the next yeah. letter. Uh, 
The Essential Art House 50 Years of Janus Films. Oh, well, yeah, The Essential Art House is pretty indispensable. Like, a while ago, I can't remember how long ago, it might have been like as many as 10 years ago now, but uh, Janus Films, which is this art house uh, label that has been putting out movies for forever, and uh, Mm. they basically synonymous with the Criterion Collection, although not everything in the Criterion Collection is a Janus film. Um, it's the same company. It's the same company, yeah. but like they also like buy the rights to distribute other things. So right, right. if it's you know if it's a Janus film, it's not necessarily everything that's on Criterion, but you know it's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap. Um, they put out a fifty, I think it was just DVD box set that retailed for eight hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> and it is out of print now. I shudder so, to so now, think. So now it's eight thousand dollars. I shudder sure. to think how expensive that thing is now but i would love it because it's mm-hmm. it's all like you, you look at the list of films on it it's just like oh my god i could be set for a lifetime of course now of course there are a lot of them most if not all of them are available well, on criterion, criterion channel, channel in fact the criterion channel has an essential art house yeah like cluster yeah and they're probably all if not or at least most of the same films uh but having them is this sense of comfort it's also cool yeah. look what i got <laughs> not gonna i'm not above that no, I, grew up, fact, I grew up collecting comics and action figures. I want to. I want people to be like, "Ooh, I mean, someone's got a complete run of Crisis and Infinite Earths." Like, were, you know. were you were you one of those assholes that would go to like a party and you'd like because we're movie buffs? Were, would you drift over to their video collection? Yeah, I would and peruse it and, and judge. judge them. Yeah, you yeah. judge. Yeah. yeah, every once in a while, I'd be jealous. Oh, for I've, sure. I've gone, yeah. to, I've gone to I've gone to various people's houses and gone like, actually, holy shit, I have no DVDs. Like, I own like. 3,000 DVDs, and I have nothing compared to this person who's like a film professor or whatever. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> um, anyway, we should move on to another letter. Uh, okay. uh, here's another letter from uh, Todd. Hello, Todd. Uh, Hello. Good evening, gentlemen. And yes, you should read that in a spooky Vincent Price type way. Good, good evening, gentlemen. I can't do it, Vincent Price. No, you can't. Um, during, during, your discussion, uh, during your discussion about A Star is Born, you had another ancillary discussion about movies that were ruined or saved by editing. Listening to the discussion reminded me to write this email that I had planned on writing a couple of days before, and I actually got around to writing it. What are some movies that may, may or may not be good, but you think would have been that much better if they had spent a little more time in the editing booth? What are some truly bad movies that you think could have been saved by some slick editing? For me, I think that the whole nine yards, mm. as much as I enjoy that movie, could have used a few seconds trimmed out between sentences to improve timing of a few scenes. I also think that a movie like Man of Steel could greatly benefit from an editing overhaul to make Clark seem a little more heroic and not so destructive towards the, uh, towards the cities that he's supposed to be saving. Mm. Also improve the structure of the movie so that the flashbacks are placed in a way that makes sense. Thanks for your time, Todd. Yeah, editing is a, is a process oh, of wait, filmmaking. Hang, hang I'm sorry. Uh, Todd, yes, yes. Todd has a PS. He says, I need a better name. I've always hated the way mine sounds. Uh, Todd, your name is the German word for death. Own it. That's a, honestly, <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought Todd was a cool name because it's the German word for death. That's mm. an awesome name. So, I, I, Todd, I think that's a cool name. I'm going to mm. throw it out there. I think you should be proud. Um, yeah, so editing is a process that I think a lot of people sort of take for granted or well, don't really think about well, they, in terms of just how absolutely those, like yeah. undyingly complicated and important it is to every single film even the films that don't have a lot of editing films that are shot on very few takes mm. or, or only one that's a choice that's an editing choice yeah. you pre-edited that there's um it's been said time and time again by people smarter than me that uh, you 
if the editor does their job, you don't notice that they've done it. And yeah. that's true of a lot of aspects of filmmaking. Some people even say that about music, but I disagree with that. But yeah, you're, you only really notice editing when it's a film is really badly edited. Yeah. Uh, when you know edits are really jarring and pacing is really off, and sometimes you'd notice very actively, sometimes it it's, just feels a little wrong because you're used to films moving like, and then having a certain kind of language. Like I know what's going on in this movie, like on paper should be interesting. Why aren't I invested in this? And but, but, it's probably yeah. a combination of we're not lingering on scenes long enough in order for them to have an emotional impact. It also mm. could be performances aren't selling it. It could be, you know, we didn't get the shots necessary in order to sort of sell the drama, but mm. editing is a process of taking what we've collected and making it work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something I talked about uh, when Valerian came out mm. was uh, that it's editing actually helps that movie be more visually dazzling because mm. uh, you compare it to a, a other sci-fi action blockbusters that are very effects-based uh, from around the same time. Yeah. And there tended to be a, a kind of flip approach to the editing in that we're just going to show things kind of incidentally. And even if it's really extraordinary or gorgeous, it's just going to be something that happens in the background because this is the world that these characters inhabit and it wouldn't impress them. And I think... That's a way of making the audience feel kind of cool. It's like, we're not going to marvel at it. Yeah, it's, it's this beautiful thing, but yeah, I'm not going to look at it because I'm cool. And what I liked about Valerian is it was just a slight little editing thing, but every time there was something new and exciting and impressively, impressively visual on screen, mm -hmm. they would linger on it for just long enough for you to be able to be wowed by it. Mm -hmm. You could see more in a movie like that. Well, and that's actually uh, that's one of the things I was thinking mm -hmm. of. What's a movie... That And I think the problems with this movie are sort of endemic to the writing of the movie, but I think it could have played better than what we got, and that is Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Mm. Where, on listen, there's so many problems with that movie in terms of like the way it is constructed, the way yeah. that it actively insults and contradicts the movie that came before it. And I know some people say, well, The Last Jedi did that too. No, it didn't. It, it just it didn't, didn't go. It, it, didn't, yeah. it really doesn't. It, everything is still going. It just doesn't go in the direction we all anticipated with all of our podcasts. Like that's that's what happened there. You can not like it all you want, but it's not a betrayal. Rise of the Skywalker actually like kind of spits on. You said it what, again. What Rise of the Skywalker? I, I want to say it that way too. I always it's say that the sound, Rise of Skywalker. It sounds better, but, yeah. but all right. Anyway, my point is that seems like the Passion of the Christ. Also, because there's the movie The Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. So like the cadence is kind of built into my head, mm. but. Rise of the Sky, Rise of Skywalker, the Rise of Sky, Episode the, Nine, the Rise of the Skywalker. amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements. <laughs> the Rise the of the Skywalker, Episode Nine, mm. is edited really choppily. Mm. I, I find it really frustrating, actually, because there's a lot of cool stuff in it, but like it breezes along so quickly from like little tiny bit of action to the next. That the action that we get, especially in like the first half, is none of it seems to land. None of it seems to actually like this is whole thing like, oh my god, you like light speed skip the Millennium Falcon? Yeah, not in a way that I made me actually realize that's what you were doing yeah. or what that means or how that's cool. Like mm -hmm. we finally get all of the characters in that trilogy all together, but the repacing is so quickly and it's just moving them from one thing to the next that I never get to enjoy them being together. Yeah, there's not a scene of uh, where 
things slow down. You or, need time. Or, you need or that. Even, even just little incidental shots of them kind of smiling or sitting together and relating in a little bit more of a human way. Like, imagine, take, take Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Like, take that movie, and I want you to, like, mentally delete, like you never saw it, hmm. the scene on the Millennium Falcon where... The droids are playing that weird chess game with Chewbacca, and Luke is training with Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they're all talking about how they view the world differently than uh, mm. Han Solo. That scene, you can just cut right to the, them, the whole Death Star thing. Like, that scene lifts out. Mm. You don't really need that scene to get the plot across. But without that scene, mm. everything that happens later... We're not feeling it. We never got a sense. And it's only one scene. We never got a sense that Obi-Wan was actually training Luke. So all of that connection doesn't fly. We never really got a moment in which Luke and Han contrasted themselves so that their actual, like, disagreements later on in the film could actually resonate. That's And that's something that I feel is missing from Rise of Skywalker. We just never have those moments. Or if we do, they move so quickly that we cannot appreciate them and live in them. Yeah, yeah. It's The movie is too well, damn there's, rushed. There's been... Uh, uh, Bordwell Thompson, the two uh, textbook authors, yeah. um, have uh, talked about how editing is getting faster and faster and uh, yeah, how... Sure. Shot the, length. Yeah, sh- shot length is shorter and shorter. Uh, there's just more and more information. Uh, some people referred to that when it was happening and things were really speeding up. Some people referred to it as chaos cinema. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a- a- applicable when you're looking at like a Michael Bay film where yeah. more editing is the better thing. Try watching a yeah. Michael Bay film shot by shot and then realize it's taking you an hour to get through one scene. Yeah, you, and yeah. You, you can't even say the word shot every time you notice an edit because they're going so fast. Yeah. Uh, and... That's a way to make a movie, sure. Uh, yeah, some, some people can work. Some people tend to like that kind of in breakneck chaos when it comes to their action pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boardwell Thompson, uh, that's two people, by the way, uh, started to refer <laughs> to that as uh, enhanced continuity or, or accelerating continuity. And just... It makes you hyper-aware of everything that is going on simultaneously. Exactly, yeah. and... And I think this is just a matter of like what you're growing up with now, because yeah. you know I'm I'm a stodgy old middle aged man, and I have trouble catching my breath with a lot of these hyperactive uh, action films now. Yeah, you just because they're edited so fast, and there's so few moments of quiet inter- introspection. Mm-hmm. That I I feel like I'm losing something. That's not the language that you learn. Exactly, I, I equated to when my dad would mm-hmm. like. Because my parents, like, grew up in the age when, like, people were like, ah, the Beatles are playing too fast. And then, of course, my parents looked down on that because they were, well, my mother was, like, a little bit younger than my dad. So it's probably more her generation. But um, regardless, like, that was something that she was just like. the Ramones. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, of course, when the Ramones came along, new generations were mad because the Ramones were ruining music. And I remember, like, my dad, like, told me, like, I can't even hear Metallica. Like, I know <laughs> you and too much information. I know you like yeah. Metallica, but like it's too loud. It's too uh, uh, the mixing is weird. I can't hear the lyrics, and I'm like, I can hear the lyrics fine mm. because I am growing up learning this musical language. Yeah, and I think that's something that's true for cinema. Now, of course, if you go back in time, you'll see that there are movies mm-hmm. that were edited that fast, or at least experimented with editing that fast, but it wasn't the norm. Mm-hmm. For most of cinema. And we've just sort of kind of gotten used to it. And I honestly think that there's always a place to pull back and be more restrained. And I think our brains get kind of comfortable when we watch something that is, yeah, full of excitement. But, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark is not 
fast edited. It's actually very like mm. meticulous and planned. And they have let shots linger and they let scenes linger when they need to. And then yeah, you'll watch something hyperkinetic that comes out now-ish. Mm. And sometimes they're wonderful. Like I love Birds of Prey. That's a hyperkinetic movie. But mm. sometimes it's just kind of chaos and you get the sense that we're just kind of throwing mm. this into a digital blender. Uh, now, in terms of uh, films that can be saved by editing, the entire filmography of Paul Thomas Anderson. Really? Cut those suckers down. Take th- <laughs> take at least 30 minutes out of every single one of those. Uh, That's a bold statement. I don't yeah. know. I think Punch Drunk Love is pretty tight. Punch Drunk, yeah. Punch Drunk Love that and Heartache. Okay. I think those are the two. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of fat on there's, those movies. There, there's a lot you can trim out of Boogie Nights. There's there's a lot that is trimmed out of Boogie there, Nights. You ever watch the deleted scenes of Boogie Nights? Yeah. That is restraint. I was about to say. <laughs> take, keep keep taking out. <laughs> take your movie to the door, spin around. The first scene you see, cut it out. Um, there Will Be Blood, remove an entire feature out of There Will Be Blood. <laughs> there's too damn much of it. I, I actually do agree there's probably like a 75-minute version of There Will Be Blood that is just as good as the version. Exactly. exactly. I, I'm not going to lie. Like, no, like granted, the, I'm not in charge of doing that. That's uh, easy to say. But, eh. Hmm. eh it's a, you know, it's all a matter of opinion. And, and I do like you know, long films, films that breathe, films that can sort of take their time and you can live in their mm. world. So long as the filmmaker has the wherewithal to understand that we're living in this space for a long time. Yeah, when you watch a movie, a movie takes place over a definite period of time. Mm. And when, now that we're all watching movies like exclusively at home, mm. um, we have more control over that. And we can pause. And we can rewind and we can fast forward. And so now, you know, depending on your DVD player, or I think Netflix is starting to do this mm-hmm. now, you can watch it at 1.25 speed. But generally speaking, movies are intended to be viewed from beginning to end without a break. Mm-hmm. At their normal speed. Without pauses. You're expected to have your attention grabbed the entire time. Now... Some movies, again, don't have a lot of editing or don't really have any. They're all like one shot, but that's mm-hmm. rare. The vast majority of movies are edited in such a way in order to keep your attention. Now, some people don't have, like, some people are very brash about that and just like throw stuff at their faces. Mm-hmm. But usually it's just a matter of, okay, now is a good moment for everybody to get more invested in the characters and to slow down so that when the action occurs, we care more. So that's kind of what we talk about when we talk about pacing. Is the pacing good? Mm-hmm. If you notice that it's slow, pacing probably isn't very good. If you notice mm-hmm. that it's too fast and you kind of wish they'd slow down and talk or, or show what they're doing more clearly, that's the a pacing pace, yeah. problem. But the best movies, in my estimation, tend to be the ones where when you're watching them, you don't think about the pacing at all. Mm-hmm. It just glides and sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow, doesn't really matter. The important thing is the movie is taking you on a journey and they are the best like mm. museum docent you've ever had. Mm. They know exactly how long to linger on each painting and statue. They know the information to tell you about each one. And at the end, you had a complete experience. Mm. I, I love Speed Racer and I also love you know, Bellatar movies. So, yeah. you know, two, be, two sides of the same coin. Editing-wise, couldn't be more different. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Austin. A person named Austin, not the city. Fair enough. Uh, Hi, Austin. Hello, Austin. Uh, good morning to my two favorite critics. Oh, oh that's um, nice. I'm rooting for both of you in the upcoming Schmodown tournament. Thank well, you very much. Thank you for that. Very excited uh, about the upcoming Schmodown tournament. What is your worst theater experience? Ooh. Not based on the movie you saw, but the, the experience itself. Mine, by far, is when I went to see the film The Invasion 
at my local dollar theater years and years ago as a young teenager. I brought a friend who was far less into movies than I was. Mm -hmm. Something about the movie looked so strange, very strange. My friend started complaining immediately. No, it has to be some sort of artistic choice, I replied over his complaints. It has to be amazing. Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig couldn't possibly have agreed to be in a movie that looked so strange and incomprehensible, I told myself. What were they getting at? I racked my brain. Dude, this is boring as fuck and looks like shit, my friend kept saying over and over. Impossible, I thought. I mean, I agree. It looks absolutely terrible. And it is indeed extremely boring, but I can't let this go. First... There must be some reason for all of this, something that will blow my mind if I just stay to the end. Shirley's mm -hmm. will reveal itself to be a masterpiece. Just then, uh, the giant shadow of a hand appeared on the screen. Everything went black. The sound continued. Minutes later, the picture returned clearer than ever. Much clearer. <laughs> Apparently, the projectionist had failed to notice that the projector had a cracked lens. Oh, shit. For over half of the movie. Oh, wow. That's terrible. They fixed it mid-screening with no explanation. You know, you know what? That's what you, that's what you got to do when you're projecting. You yeah. can't start the movie over. No, that throws it off the timeline for the entire yeah. thing everyone should get a free ticket oh absolutely you get, yeah you have refunds but yeah uh, that's uh, they fixed them in screening with no explanation i couldn't be too mad it was a dollar theater after all cracked lens those things are expensive and fragile yeah i don't, know how, you, I don't know how you would miss that that how did you Look, crack that I, I, you know i worked in a projectionist booth for many years and that's the thing you handle the most carefully are those lenses yeah I mean, it's gotta happen but like yeah. it's just a hell of a thing there's but a story I, um, there i had to leave the theater with someone who uh only stayed for over an hour because i guess this thing that must be some artistic choice <laughs> <laughs> only have to admit that i was so far up my own ass that what i thought must have been some sort of high art was in fact a very boring movie with a malfunctioning projector yeah i've been there <laughs> i will never forget this haha -ha. excited to see if you have a, have had anything worse love austin i was uh, at a screening of I was at UCLA it was when I was at film school and I was very fortunate that when it was at film school coincided with a series of um, like remastered beautifully redone uh, uh, Shaw Brothers movies that were being mm. shown in 35mm at the uh, school theater I think mm. it's called the Bridges Theater and um, it's been so long since I've seen a movie there actually but uh, yeah they had revival screenings there all the time, because they were right next to the UCLA library, and they would just bring the print over, and they would mm. show it, and then it would be done. And occasionally, there'd be, like, this big surprise. Like, I would walk out of, like, I think I've told this story before, but I was, like, walking out of a long day of classes, and I'm like, oh, I've been up for, like, 18 hours. I'm so tired. I've been doing so much work. Why is everyone in line? Oh, they're showing mm. Remains of the Day. There's this long a line for Remains of the Day? Anthony Hopkins is doing a Q&A and I got right in that fucking line and it was amazing and so they would do cool things like that and so there was this big series of revival screenings of Shaw Brothers movies they showed 36 Chamber of Shaolin followed by Return to the 36 Chamber of Shaolin which is one of the weirdest sequels ever because Gordon Liu who starred in the first one is back for the second one playing a different character who interacts with the character he played in the previous film that is no longer played by Gordon Liu. It's <laughs> bizarre. Also he plays also he plays a character who impersonates the character Gordon Liu played in the first one and then later on learns a new kind of kung fu based on scaffolding. All right. It's a weird film but it's very good. There was a screening of one of my favorite kung fu movies Legendary Weapons of China and it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, and we knew that there was something wrong mm -hmm. and it was another one of those ones where I was, I just pulled like a 20 hour day and I was just uh -huh. like, I was in there and I was no way I'm missing it. Cause when we're going to see this on the big screen again mm -hmm. and we were something weird, like all of a sudden we just couldn't follow the plot and it turns out they put the reels in the wrong order, oh, which God. is a really bad thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, and you know what? 
I've done that. I'm sure I've made it's all that ha- mistake. Of course. I, 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 midnight show. I did a midnight show of Inherent Vice, which is so hard to follow, and yeah. it's the middle of night, it's three in the morning, it's like, oh, I didn't remember that. Could people this tell? Is, it was kind of hard. Some, some like, we did have, like, two people complain, but the rest of the audience is just totally <laughs> like, rolling like, with it. fuck it, I'm sure this is probably right. They were all high, it was midnight, it didn't really matter. <laughs> um, but, but, but when you're, when you're a projectionist, yeah, that matters. That's one example. Yeah. I, I've been to like uh, theaters where I was at a very notorious uh, early screening of The Hateful Eight, where it was supposed mm. to be big seventy millimeter. It was at this really nice theater called The Crest in Westwood, California, mm. and uh, they screened it, and the uh, uh, like the anamorphic lens was off. Oh no! And so it was, was like skewed a little it was, bit. It or? wasn't too bad actually. I actually didn't think it would look that off mm. but like yeah it was like a little out of focus in the middle and warped okay. and like well, uh, yeah a little, a little but bit like of, the whole point yeah. of the screening was to show off how much better it looks in 70 millimeter right. and they fucked up the presentation yeah, yeah. that sucks I, I heard stories yeah because so few projectionists are used to working with film especially 70 millimeter uh-huh. film uh when these 70 millimeter prints come through people are being trained to do these things essentially the day they got to project them so, yeah, like the framing is off and the focus is going to be off and they're doing the lenses a little bit wrong. Um, anamorphic lenses are a little difficult because the way it is uh, on the film strip is they compress the image mm-hmm. so it fits on the 35 millimeter film strip. The, sh- the shape of the, the image is the same. Yeah, it's actually like uh, it's coming out on the screen in like a big rectangle, but in the actual film strip, it's a square and you yeah. have to have a, a, a lens. lens that stretches yeah. the image. Now, it's a fascinating uh, way to do it. Because it stretches the image, it's not going to focus exactly all the way across. Uh, when you're looking at an anamorphic lens, you can either get perfect focus right in the center, but it'll be blurry around the edges or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you're a skilled projectionist, you'll find that sort of sweet spot where everything is just sort of soft and people won't really notice, Yeah. but it's not going to be perfect focus throughout. Uh, and if you have that little skew where everything like is kind of tilted diagonally a little bit, it means they didn't put the lens in right. It's twisted a little bit. Yeah. I think that's what just, happened you know, with the Hateful Eight screen. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is I was at a press screening for X-Men Dark Phoenix, which is not a good movie. No. Uh, and it was so bad that when this happened mm. in the last act, everyone assumed the movie just sucks. Mm. <laughs> like, it's just this is probably what they're doing. Um, there was a fire alarm that went off in the movie theater. <laughs> this happened to me at a Les Mis screening. Yeah, the fire alarm went off in the movie theater, but it was it actually matched the film's soundtrack, kind of. Because it was this all like intense action sequence like on a train. Uh-huh. And we were all just like, this is weird, but no one's telling us to evacuate. And it's been going on for ten minutes, so... I guess this is fine. And then we found out that we were the only theater in which they didn't tell people to evacuate. <laughs> and it just uh, left you to burn. And fortunately, it was a false alarm, but oh, okay. it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a test or anything like someone had pulled yeah. it or something. But like, but because the movie just wasn't good, mm. the fact that on top of it all, there's this annoying part of the soundtrack. We were all willing to go. Yeah, it's par for the course. Really, nothing about this movie works. So. That's another one. You got any other thing mm. you want to add? Like, uh, I know you have I mean, a lot of experience in the booth. Yeah, and that's kind of no, weird. Just, but like, like in the theater, movies, I, I remember when I saw Fahrenheit 9/11. The air conditioning broke, and I nearly passed out because of the heat. 9/11 was, like, was not supposed to be the temperature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It, it was literally over 100 degrees in that oh theater. I was just sweating through my uh, shirt. And it was just miserable. And it was in one of those theaters where the seats were really tiny, like particularly tiny. Mm. And so you're really kind of cramped up and you got to sit straight up and there's just no way of getting around anybody. That was that was a pretty miserable experience. Mm. I think it's interesting that we're like, uh, you know, everyone's like very nostalgic for movie theaters right now because most of us haven't had an opportunity to go in five, six months now. And <laughs> and, and we won't be able to go back because they're all going to die. It's not a good scene right now. No, and I know we're all nostalgic for it, but it's also worth remembering that sometimes it wasn't great. Mm. And maybe that like remembering your worst theater experience might sort of take the sting off of not being able to see Tenet right now. But, but at the same time, I would go to a second run theater or oh, a dollar yeah. theater where you know, things are really just horrible and filthy <laughs> and uh, you know there's like a bat climbing up the screen <laughs> and and that there's something kind of charming about that kind of experience we had this wonderful theater in Pasadena I, it used to still be there I haven't like been to Pasadena like since the more than like once since mm-hmm. like the epidemic started but uh, it's called was called the Academy and it's mm-hmm. this um, it's multiple stories like two or three stories of like six very tiny theaters like, I doubt any of the screens have, like, a capacity of more than, like, 70. Uh-huh. And they were all second run, and for a long time, you can get, like, two movies for, like, five bucks in, like, not very good projection. But um, it was worth it. The, the experience of a crappy movie theater is still better than a lot of other experiences you can have in life, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And so that's where I saw, like, Princess Mononoke, like, three times, just oh, like yeah. as I could. <laughs> and I could afford it that summer. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I want to say this. I'm all, I love movie theaters and mm. I really hope that movie theaters don't die out. Uh, I don't think they will entirely, but if this keeps going, there might be a paradigm shift and there might be a change in the way that they operate and how many we have. And, um, Look, I'm old enough to, like, just know that things change. Mm. And I'm not going to, like, it's the the way I I grew up with this, the way it should always be. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it's for the better. Sometimes it's for the worse. But we'll adapt, won't we? Okay. So, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Here's a letter from Adamantium. Ooh. Signing off as Adamantium, the, the fictional metal that's inside Hugh Jackman's body. Also Wolverines. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Metal Meister McCold. I'll take Metal Meister McCold. That's cool. Cold, frost, frozen, freeze, winter. Uh, My significant other and I recently watched Casablanca, right around the time you guys did uh, for HBO. And I have a question because it didn't totally work for us. Okay. I can totally see why it has the reputation it does in many respects. The immortal lines, the complex characters and great performances, themes and ideas that live on in every genre. And Claude Rains as Captain Reynold is hilarious. But I'm curious about its historical context. The movie came out in 1943, so the idea that geopolitics of two years ago uh, would be known was likely taken for granted. But we're both somewhat confused. I'm more of a World War II history person than she is, Mm -hmm. but while I somewhat understood the context of Nazi-occupied France beyond the general idea, I really didn't know much, and I feel like the movie just assumes that you know what Vichy France is and what Casablanca is and why non-occupied Casablanca France is appealing to Nazis. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if this is generational. Mm -hmm. Uh, My... my my significant other and I are both millennials. Or if this is common enough for critics with more f- more of a film background, such as yourselves. I also wonder what other films coming out now you might think be- would be confusing to audiences in the future without that context. Mm-hmm. I recently heard of the first feature-length film, The Story of the Kelly Gang, from 1906. Uh, it's a missing film. 
it's a long history of it's destroyed or it's not destroyed or there's only one copy. There was more than one copy, but at the end of the day, there was only like 15 minutes of footage that survived. What are some interesting pieces of film folklore that you, that speak to you as critics? Uh, are there movies about lost movies? Uh, so many directors love to make movies about movies. It would be fun to see an adventure movie about tracking down a lost film. There are a couple and we'll get to those. And uh, there's another. Let's get to those two first. There's a, a third question. Though. Yeah, yeah. Because that's, um, that's actually a lot of material. Yeah, Where do you so, want to start? Uh, Casablanca, in terms of historical mm-hmm. context, um, I think you just sort of have to be familiar with you know, European history at the time to understand a lot of the context of Casablanca. But that's World fair. War II was a significant event, and it wasn't just an immediate thing that was going on to audiences in 1943. It's something that. We studied incessantly in school, and movies about World War II are coming about all the time. I just yeah. reviewed one last week called Summerland. It takes place during World War II. It's not about the war, but it's mm. about the consequences of the war. Uh, so having a little bit of historical knowledge isn't necessarily a generational thing. I think it's just how much history have you studied. Yeah. And, and a lot of, and this is one of the reasons why you'll watch a lot of history movies, and they'll open with a scrawl: "The mm. year is 1692. Mm. The Normans have just mm. invaded." Blah, just to give you just sort of a general background of where Nor- we're at. What are the Normans doing in 1692? I don't fucking know. <laughs> I just pulled some random words out of a hat. Yeah. Okay, imagine you, again, to bring it up again. You're watching mm. Star Wars. Uh-huh. Take out the title scrawls. Mm. Just take them out. You've never seen a Star Wars before. Take out the title scrawl. There's no orientation. You just sort of dropped in. Now, it still might be entertaining, but you also don't really have your bearings, do you? Mm. So that's a factor. Yeah. Um, So historical context does matter. This is something that I'm very conscious of when I talk about older movies as a film Mm. critic is we need to be... And this is something that I think the best, like, TV hosts used to do, and they still do on Turner Classic Movies, for example, Mm. where here's the movie you're going to watch. Here's the environment in which it came out. This is the kind of movie that was popular at the time. These Here, actors were big. This person was nobody yet, but now you're going to see them before they were big. Like, well, they're going to like make allusions to things that were popular at the time, popular songs, events mm-hmm. that you might not necessarily be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Things that are relevant mm-hmm. to the movie and that the filmmakers probably have an assumption that you are at least somewhat familiar with going mm-hmm. in. And Casablanca is definitely one of those where it's actually – I, I can appreciate that. It as, is actually kind of thick. Mm. In its time with uh, sort of the politics of Europe, Nazis, Americans, French, Polish. It's a lot going on. Yeah. And I think that I think the fact that you were able to say that you can still appreciate the film on some level shows that the love story finds that all those political elements kind of incidental. Yeah. And it kind of functions just as a tragic love story on its own. But I think to fully appreciate the film in all of its complexity it does help to have a bit of a primer, and I think it's fair to say that sometimes I think that every movie should come with an introduction. <laughs> like, if it isn't, like, brand new, if it's more than five years old, every mm. movie should have a, here's where we were at. Because yeah. someone young is going to see this someday and not have any idea about why this is significant or yeah. why they should care. Well, but you can't do that with, you can't put everything into context. Some things you just have to feel. Like, you know, oh, that's the, just true. You're going to Needle do drops that on the soundtrack. You know, that song's going to be significant in a very specific window of time. I don't need to have, you know, an entire history of 99 Luftballons explained to me when they drop it in a movie. Hmm. Um, 
I'm not saying it needs to there, be in hyper yeah. detail. I just think it, it, if you want it, mm. I think it should be available. Like, oh, I don't know if but I got there, this. Yeah. There should be like a quick Turner yeah. Classic Movies intro for every movie. There are some movies that seem like they would be dated uh, that are because they're technology based, something like War Games. But War Games still plays. You understand mm. what's going on in War but Games because it feels very much like I, a period piece yeah, now. Um, like you never pretend it was taking place right now. No, whether or not it's a period piece, it still feel you still understand the drama and what's going on with the computer. Well, War Games uh, also understands that a lot of its audiences aren't familiar with computers, and they take the time to. Explain exactly. What like. Yeah, uh, one that is dated, and it's actually one of our favorite movies. We talk about it a lot. Is a movie called Sneakers there by Phil Alden Robinson. Uh, Sneakers came out in a very particular time uh, in geopolitical history. It was right after the coup in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. but it was before a lot of the country the. So the previous uh, the countries that were absorbed into the Soviet Union became independent states again. Yeah. So. Uh, the country for a, a very short while was called the Commonwealth of Independent States. Yeah. It's called the CIS. And it, it wasn't Russia and other nations yet. But it wasn't the Soviet Union either. And one of the characters in that movie is Russian. He's a, a Russian attache for the Commonwealth of Independent States. And where Russia is at that very particular time, which was a, like less than a year... Mm-hmm plays very heavily into the drama of that film. Yeah, because it's all about... Mm. Yeah, well, whatever. Because anyway, yeah, it's, 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 it's about espionage. Uh, yeah. A bit, or a big part of the plot is espionage. I'm, I'm reminded there was a joke on The Simpsons where they were uh, someone had to take a citizenship test and Homer was like testing them. And it was mm. like, can you tell me why this flag has exactly 49 stars? Was, because it came out in the very, very short amount of time between like Alaska and Hawaii becoming <laughs> states. Like, what are they... This must have been like a week? What was that? Ridiculous. The joke is uh, Homer says that mm, partial credit, <laughs> but um, but you're right. Like some movies are very specific to their timeline. Some mm. movies are kind of general, and it doesn't really matter when they came out. And even if they are specific, even if they are specific, it's true. And I think you know it's easy to say, well, the best movies will just walk you through it. And the best movies, you don't need anything, and they'll tell you everything you need to know. But oftentimes, those kinds of movies, when they come out, like. In their time, people would say, like, why are you explaining all this shit? We know all this shit. Not everyone will. Mm. Always. So context is key. I think context is something that, as you start looking more and more into film history, will become increasingly invaluable. And there's a lot of movies where you might say to yourself, I don't understand why this is significant. And then Mm. you study up on it and you realize that the reason why this thing feels like old hat is because it was the very first thing to do what other movies would later rip off. Mm. So that's something that can be a real mind blower. Um, so anyway, context is, is a thing and uh, it's absolutely not your fault for maybe not picking up on all of the details if you're not really knee deep hmm. in all of the uh, information about the era. But, if, uh, but it might help. If you watch more movies that were made at the time or movies about the time, it'll mm-hmm. fill out a lot of your knowledge True. of uh, what was going on during World War II. It was a gigantically chaotic time. The entire world fell apart. Mm-hmm. All of our contracts were violated. It was a significant era. Yeah, it really and, was. And uh, in, in mostly in negative ways. Okay, all negative ways. It was a world friggin' war. Yeah, it was pretty uh, bad. Pretty bad. Uh, what was the second so thing in the email? The second thing in the, in the email was... Um, Oh, it was film folklore. Was, yeah, what, what, what's like some fun films about uh, like lost movies? Well, there's and actually there... a series of books that you turned me on to about mm. uh, uh, like a, it's like a detective story. Oh yeah, uh, it's is by an author named Lauren Esselman. I forget yeah. the name of the detective, but, yeah. uh, but like the first book is about uh, we found in this like dilapidated old movie theater a secret room 
with a dead body mm. and possibly the complete uncut version of the silent movie Greed, which is one of the most famous lost films ever made, yeah, yeah. which is a great setup. It's, it's, it's a fictional story, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, a, sadly a short-lived series of of. Film archiving mysteries. Yeah, by this author named Lauren Esselman. But there's a few uh, of them, and you can check that out if you're interested. Uh, but there are many films also about filmmaking and lost films and uh, sort of early film eras. Uh, Martin Scorsese's Hugo is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a film about discovering what Georges Méliès did after a lot of his films were destroyed, mm-hmm. and um, kind of rediscovering his his work. Uh, there was a horror film uh, directed by John Carpenter that was part of the Masters of Horror series mm-hmm. uh, that was co-written by Drew McQueenie, uh, who a lot of people know as a film critic and also a schmodown competitor and online personality. And uh, that is all, about all, a all-around great guy. That is about a guy who has been hired to find a lost film. Uh, that drives people mad it's, when they uh, see it. It's so bizarre and so yeah. scary that you go crazy. I, it's actually, it. go back to the editing question, that's mm-hmm. one that I feel like that would be a stronger movie if it was a half hour longer. I feel like yeah, it's, it's actually it like a little like a full feature. Yeah, I think it would be a little stronger, but like mm-hmm. it's an hour. It's cool, and if you like movies, it's definitely like very mm-hmm. geeky and worth checking um, out. There is a really wonderful documentary out there called Dawson City Frozen Time. Oh, good, and, good uh, Dawson City Frozen Time uh, is about... Uh, how during the gold rush, uh, boom towns were happening all up and down the the western coast of North America, mm. and as people were traveling up all, all the way up to Alaska looking for gold, they would have to stop and rest. The people would set up cities, and sometimes uh, some of these cities, Dawson City in particular, uh, I think within the course of a year went from having ten people to having ten thousand people to having ten people again, <laughs> and and so all of these and you know people want to be uh, entertained. The things that usually went up right away were a hotel, a brothel, and a movie theater, and because of the way movie prints were circulating, they would circulate through all of the theaters in uh, North America. They would eventually end their circuit up in the Yukon. And that was the end of the line for the film. So if you lived in the Yukon, you got to see films last. Mm. And once uh, that last theater was done with these prints, they could write back to the studio and say, hey, we have this print. It's beat to shit because it's run through a a thousand projectors. Mm. We're going to send it back to you. And the studio was to say, no, just throw it away. And sometimes they would. Sometimes they just throw, throw them in a river. Uh, but with Dawson, we don't have the storage space. Dawson yeah. City Frozen Time, somebody said, well, why don't we just put them in this underground pool? It's not full of water. We just store them in this swimming pool. Mm. And over the courses of the years, because people are coming and going so quickly and because the city is just very quickly evolving, they ended up just covering them with dirt. And mm. they stayed buried and they tore down the building on, that was over it. So mm-hmm. it just buried underneath the permafrost. And it turns out the permafrost perfectly preserved a lot of these old prints. They were made of nitrate film, which was really volatile. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told stories about how kids would walk by this big lot and there would be little tiny shreds of film sometimes sticking up out of the dirt. Oh, weird. And because it's nitrate film, it's highly flammable. So the kids would light it on fire. It's like these little wicks and they oh. would like, it's like little impromptu fireworks that they just sort of let these things on fire. Yeah, there goes the ending of the Magnificent Ambersons. And, uh, yeah, well, I mean, this is back in like the I'm, 20s. But, I'm uh, joking, I'm joking, but yeah. But yeah, eventually... London After this, Midnight, pff, gone. This documentary is really fascinating, though, because they ended up digging up a lot of these prints and they were able to watch some of them, like restore them enough that they could be watched again. And all of these, a lot of these films were thought lost to time. Yeah. And they found these films buried in a swimming pool in the Yukon. That's uh, awesome. 
one of the more fascinating uh, details that they just sort of skim past in Dawson City Frozen Time is, oh, I know what you're going to say. Uh, yeah, that people are going up and down the coast, going uh, looking for gold in the gold rush. Occasionally, people would just find enough gold dust on the trail that they could just go home with it. They wouldn't need yeah, to go all the way. That's enough yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, one uh, entrepreneur found a bunch of gold, uh, just sort of started to gather it, decided to not all the way at the end of the gold rush, but on route, build a brothel on the way. Yeah. And uh, just keep on accumulating as much gold as possible and keeping it in the brothel company. That person was Fred Trump. Yeah. And that's how the Trump fortune began, was finding gold on the ground and a brothel. Yeah. That that's that's the origin of it. So if if you've ever wondered why the the Trump aesthetic is tacky as shit and it's all painted <laughs> gold, that's it's, why it's, it's in the family. There's, there's a yeah. reason why it looks that way. Uh, back in the fictional realm, movies mm. about sort of lost movies. There's a really really great Peter Jackson movie that nobody talks about called Forgotten Silver. One of his better movies, actually. It, I actually agree. I this is I would put this in like top tier, like top mm. two or three. Um, it is a documentary. Uh, about a New Zealand filmmaker called Colin McKenzie. Colin McKenzie is a forgotten filmmaker. You know, his name's in the books somewhere. He's not completely unknown, but no one cares. A New Zealand filmmaker. That's that's significant. Very significant. And uh, Peter Jackson, who's, of course, a famous filmmaker in New Zealand, even in, like, the early 90s, because he had done things like Heavenly Creatures and Bad Taste. And mm. um, someone said, hey, I found all this old footage in an old shed. Would you mind taking a look? And Peter Jackson just goes through this old footage thinking, oh, maybe it's old home movies, and finds that Colin McKenzie was actually the most significant filmmaker who ever lived. He invented the close-up, first person to do it on record, first person to do a tracking shot, had an experimental technique that invented color before anyone else mm. used it, synchronized sound before anyone else used well, it. But uh, there was always some disaster that befell Colin McKenzie that prevented his discoveries from being seen by the world. Yeah. It's like he discovered color film, but he filmed nude women, and yeah. so it was and considered so the, pornographic. Yeah. And, or like he used synchronized sound, but he would only use it on people from like other countries, and so in New Zealand no one could tell what they were saying so mm -hmm. they weren't really interested in the effect and, and then there's this wonderful like there's interviews with all these New Zealand filmmakers and Leonard Malton and everyone talking about how we finally discovered like this sort of missing link in the history of cinema and Colin McKenzie has brought so much honor to New Zealand Colin McKenzie didn't exist he's, he's completely it's, it's a total mockumentary and it's basically uh, and, and all this wonderful, incredible, like, period footage was recreated by Peter Jackson. Mm. And it's all basically a documentary about sort of historical exceptionalism and how we keep seeing these documentaries about how, like, ah, oh, yes, the great American pioneers and how there's an element of fiction and all of that in there. Mm. So it's really smart. It's really absorbing. It's really fun to see, like, all of these, like, sort of, like, old, like, movies that have been sort of recreated in a mm. very realistic way like if you watched it completely without knowing anything about it you might be fooled because it's mm. really well crafted and it's done a completely deadpan they never wink at the camera it's not like spinal tap or anything um and apparently some people actually were convinced much like in the war of the worlds uh kind yeah, of thing Colin like, mckenzie was a real person like people saw it on tv but they missed the intro or whatever mm. and so like yeah 
Um, so that's a really fun one, and nobody talks about it. And I hope you can find it because it's really, really yeah. good. And there was another bit to the uh, there's email. An, another bit to this email. Uh, one more question. You guys uh, like long letters, it seems. So here goes. Okay. Uh, for my birthday, I went to see my favorite movie of all time at a drive-in, Back to the Future. Hey, what a great experience! One of the reasons I love Back to the Future is how every single sentence pays off and really yeah. rewards rewatches. My favorite scene in the movie that never ceases to make me smile from ear to ear is when Marty confronts Doc in 1955. From the pitch-perfect intro of the mad scientist Doc with the mind-reading machine to the lame Reagan, the actor, joke, <laughs> Marty nervously explaining and showing the picture and the apex when, is when the brilliant Christopher Lloyd says it, back to the future. And basically everybody points to the camera and slowly breaks eye contact. It's just incredible. What is a scene that never fails to put you on cloud nine? Keep up the amazing mm. work, Adamantium. Uh, uh I have trouble with these questions these days. Oh, yeah? Uh, because I'm so busy, I don't rewatch movies. Well, but uh, you they, have rewatched them before. I, it, it's been a long time. I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've rewatched films merely for pleasure in the last five years. But you have rewatched uh, films for work, for example. Yeah, I know we watch a lot of movies for like episode zero mm. or only the best. And But the idea of like going to see your favorite movie or like what's a mm. comfort movie of yours, I don't have those anymore. Yeah. I just watch movies. Yeah, uh, not only are you a professional mm. and you're putting carrying down like a couple of jobs, you also have a family and mm. it's just... It, the luxury of being able to rewatch movies over and over again is wonderful and it fades. Yeah. Just life gets in the way, and no matter how many movies you absorb, you just well, there might be a couple of movies you have on standby. I'm depressed. I'm really just going to watch Step Up 3D again, but it's pretty rare. Mm. For me, the scene, and this is a movie I try to watch every year on my birthday. Uh, it's my favorite movie, and it's Searching for Bobby Fischer. Okay, and I talked about it a lot, but in case you're new uh, uh, and, you, and you don't remember it, it's uh, written and directed by Steven Zalian, uh, who's probably best known <laughs> for writing the screenplay to Schindler's List. Um, and it is the story, it's a real life story about a young chess prodigy, uh, and his father played by Joe Mantegna, uh, who is completely enamored of how brilliant his son is at chess, mm -hmm. but finds himself becoming rather without trying a, uh, uh, obsessive sports parent who is prioritizing his son's competition over his son's happiness. Mm -hmm. And it all culminates in a chess sequence, which I am convinced is one of the most exciting competitions ever caught on camera. Like, fight movies, like, uh, boxing movies, baseball movies, sports movies. I've seen some great ones, and some of them hold a candle, but that final chess game between two child chess prodigies mm -hmm. and how the movie has trained us over the course of the film, to understand, even if we don't know a lot about chess, what is going on, how they are doing things differently, when it accelerates, how he is like this this child who was taught by like two different chess masters who have completely different perspectives on how chess works, and how he is actually using everything that they taught him. Mm. To the extent that both of this is, is, his uh, teachers are sort of bewildered and don't understand what he's doing. It is so unbelievably exhilarating. That I just I I my I can feel my body tingle when I watch it because I'm just filled with this wonderful happy adrenaline mm -hmm. because like it, like when the chest like the end game finally comes in and these two kids who are so short their feet don't even touch the ground on the chairs they like kick out their chairs because they're moving their chest pieces so fast yeah. and it's like oh my god this is the coolest damn thing ever <laughs> Sergeant Robbie Fisher it's it's one of the few movies mm -hmm. I can actually honestly say I think are perfect. 
right. And that's my favorite scene in it because it's just amazing. Yeah. I still haven't seen it. Oh, my God. I haven't seen Searching for Bobby. One of the days I'm going to force you to see that movie. I know you are. I think you're really going to like it. <laughs> I mean it. I really do. You might not love it as much as I do because who does? But, like, yeah, I think you're really going to like it. It's too bad I'm never going to see it. It's just too bad. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> there's gotta there, be something there are some movies that it, it's like I have to sort of admit to myself that they probably never will wander into my field of vision mm. it's like uh, sure I could watch Ouija Origin of Evil it's never pretty, saw it I heard it was okay it's pretty good but you know what I'm probably never gonna have the time it's probably to, never to gonna come that up aside. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so that, that movie's just kind of I just have to come to peace with the fact that that movie's lost to me. <laughs> will forever be out of my grasp. Yeah. If you ever do watch it, I think you will enjoy it. I'm sure I if will. If you never do, I have you'll nothing, also be okay. I have nothing I have nothing against it. It's not like I'm yeah. going to, well, to hide from this movie. Either. Again, there's like, what, it, before this year, ignoring this year, there were like, what, 800 theatrically released films last year? Yeah. And that doesn't include like straight-to-video films and straight-to-streaming films and... There's no one has time to watch to every around, single yeah. one from every single year. We all have to accept that we're not going to see everything. But okay, but just put that aside. What are some of your favorite scenes in movies? Just movie mm. scenes where you watch the individual scene beginning to end. You would like if you were teaching a film class. This mm. is a scene that you would tell. Like, Here's a scene where everything goes right. Hmm. It's got to be something. Um, I, not, nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. The shunting scene in society. That's a great scene. That is very on brand. Yeah, that's great. Society, that's wonderful special effects. It's goopy and disgusting. And we kind of can't tell you anything more about it because <laughs> it's this really weird ending to a movie that does not prepare you for it. It's like, was it 1989? It came out in 1989. It was yeah. directed by Brian Usna. I think it was his first film as a director. Mm-hmm. Previously, I worked with Stuart Gordon producing a lot of his movies. He directed the two Reanimator sequels, which are fun. Mm. I, I like both Reanimator sequels. Um, not as good as the original, but they're yeah, good. It's, it's about this uh, shadowy conspiracy in a really affluent, upscale white neighborhood. And a uh, young boy begins to suspect that his sister and his parents, who are planning for like a big debutante's ball, mm-hmm. are up to something far more unsavory. Yeah, they might be part of like some sort of secret like society it, or, or right. secret like cadre of like rich white people who are running everything and mm. are up to some weird creepy like, like some, sex cult yeah, or like, something like weird incest stuff going yeah. on and, and and it turns out what he uncovers is way more fucked up yeah like <laughs> than every, you possibly imagine i'm watching this movie i'm like and it's okay it's mm. kind of tawdry and it's it's kind of gross but uh, but also in just this kind of general late night Cinemax kind of way, and then the last like ten minutes of the film, we're like, "Holy shit! What in the fuck is going on?" Society is one of those movies, much like Audition, which we talked about in mm-hmm. the last episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, where it, the less you know about it going in, the better. But you need to let people know that it's worth getting to the ending because otherwise they might not. <laughs> Right, because it's because it's okay, but it's not that good. And maybe you'll like if you watch it late at night, you might start to nod off. Like, wait for it. You will know when the thing happens. It's late in the movie, but you will. There will be no confusion. You won't come afterwards. Like, Biz, what are we talking about? What scene in society are we talking about? Oh, was, you will fucking know. You mean it was the scene that will give you nightmares for the next couple of years? And yeah, it's really disturbing. It'll make you barf in your shirt. <laughs> That's the scene we're talking about. That's, can we please, next time they release Society on home video, can we have that be the cover? It will make you barf in your shirt. 
<laughs> Put that on a shirt. It says the critically acclaimed network. <laughs> this shirt's been made for barfing. Um, <laughs> special. Here's my special society barfing shirt. Nice. Uh, okay, well, that's... It's a good example, though. Scenes, it's a different kind of scene. The but. problem is, I, I, maybe I'm just wired weird, but the scenes, the scenes I'm all thinking of, the scenes that I like to go, sort of go back to are usually, like, really surreal or gory in some sort of way. You okay. know, it's like it's really dark movies like Hellraiser 2 or Razorhead, mm. you know. S- scenes that make me feel fear and disgust are the ones that exhilarate me the most. No, the ones that exhilarate me the most are, are just, I don't know, they just got a weird energy to them. Like, one scene that I've, like, rewatched over and over again on YouTube after I watched the movie was the dueling violin scene from High Strung. <laughs> And I, just, I, mean, I don't think you even watched the movie, but I showed you this. You showed scene. me the scene, and the but, scene's pretty spectacular. It's, it's a, a like a high society party, and uh, there's this evil violinist mm. who's like he's not really evil, but he's a dick, and you're not supposed to like him. And um, there's also a hunky like uh, uh, immigrant whose green card is expired, and he needs to win this violin slash dance contest in order to <laughs> pay for a lawyer visa, to help him stay yeah, in the yeah, country. Man. And that's neither here nor there. And they end up getting into an impromptu violin contest in which all of the waiters start 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 doing like step up dance moves in the middle of it and like breaking champagne glasses and shit. And there's a bit in the middle where they're fiddle, one guy fiddles so fucking hard and the other guy fiddles even fucking harder. And then they just snap and they use their bows as swords and go whap 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 and then bring it. It's fucking crazy. And if you do nothing else after watching this, listening to this podcast. Go to YouTube and look up like high strung violin duel or something similar. Um, you will not be unhappy. It's so <laughs> fucking great. I live for those moments. We were watching a movie and you're like, this is okay. And then for like five minutes, it's the mm. best thing you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those. I, I, that was the feeling I got with uh, Step Up 3D the first time we saw yeah, it together. Yeah. We saw it together for the first time, too. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, this is okay. Oh, this is a good sequence. Wait, this lasts the whole movie? The whole movie is fucking amazing? Oh my god. That's, yeah. Step Up 3D is the best movie ever made. It's right up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we have time for one more? Step, step Up 3D and then Ozu and then uh, yeah. you know, so, some others. Do we have time for uh, one more letter? Sure, I guess we can do one Last more one more. One more. One more letter. Um, oh, and we got one during the show. <gasps> wow, it happened. And, all right. Um, here we go. Uh, this is Anthony. Okay. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Uh, greetings, uh, Wilney and Whitliam. That's a new one. <laughs> I hope you are doing well. I am. Thank you. I'm doing okay. Uh, I had finished your uh, Richard Francois-sponsored po- episode on John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. I found that an offhand observation stuck with me. Bibbs mentioned that the scene in The Thing with the defibrillator was scary. I've always viewed it as shocking. Just to clarify, I see a lot of what happens in the thing as moments that will take the audience by surprise. Typically, these moments are just unexpected, providing a jolt that doesn't last very long. I realize this is my opinion I'm expressing, but to my mind, shocks are not the same things as scares. For me, a scare is something that will induce anxiety, something that will unnerve you, even without the element of surprise. For the older listeners, it's something that'll give you the creeps. Mm -hmm. I seem to recall Whitney mentioning that he doesn't like cockroaches, which is why he finds their creeping up on you segment in Creepshow so to be disturbing. 
this would be more in line with what I think of as an example of something that would scare someone. Right. Things that I find scarier, photographs of ghostly images off to the side in the background. That's why I found Lake Mungo, an Australian mockumentary about a missing girl, one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. I really need to I've see that. I've heard a lot of people recommend that. I have seen Lake Mungo. I found that I needed to brace myself every time a photo was shown in that movie, and when they showed a series of them, I was completely unnerved. Mm. Oh, I, I get that with like the white noise stuff. Oh, yeah. and somebody's listening to, to static, and you just hear like a like coming out of the static, like a little girl saying, "You're killing me!" It's like, "Oh shit, no!" <laughs> Uh, to a lesser degree, I find mirrors creepy because mm. uh, the idea of a reflection looking different or behaving independently of the person being reflected is unsettling. Yeah, because we know how they're uh, supposed to yeah. work, so they don't work mm. that way. It freaks you the hell out. This one doesn't scare me as much in movies because this trope is typically telegraphed or it's executed mm. in a cheesy manner. When it's done yeah. right, though, it definitely gets to me. Sure. Uh, what do you gentlemen think? Is my separation from sh- of shocks from scares too pedantic? What are some concepts that you find unnerving? Love your podcast as always. Anthony, who is avoiding mirrors? <laughs> um, this is actually a good question. Um, when you're making a horror movie, horror movies are very much about fear. Hmm. Um, and you get to decide not only like how you're going to be about fear. Are you going to explore fear? Are you going to exploit fear? You also get to decide what kind of fear that you're attempting to achieve. Just as there are different kinds of love. There's romantic love, familial love, the love uh, that is merely a mutual respect, mm. a love for an object or a memory. These are all different kinds of love, and you can explore every single one. Love of a good sandwich. Yeah, it's a different kind of love. Um, but fear works the same way, and mm. I think there are different kinds of fear. Um, I Shock is a good way to describe, but I tend to focus uh, – I, I tend to think of it more in terms of um, uh, dread. Okay, That's the word I tend to use more for that kind of like – this is scary, and I'm not, like, jumping up and, like, losing my popcorn. I just don't know if I'm ever going to sleep again. That kind of, like, low simmer really gets under your skin, connects to whatever you're actually afraid of, and just pushes your buttons and makes you feel uneasy because you feel like the universe is, isn't right. Mm. And then shocks is as good a word as any uh, for the other one, um, where it's more startling and we're sort of getting at that sort of, I understand, like, I feel safe where I am. And then mm-hmm. someone just taps you on the shoulder and go, yeah, these are equally valid forms of fright, I think, in order to evoke so in a movie. In terms of uh, using them for entertainment purposes. Yeah, exactly. And some movies are only going for one or another. Some movies try to achieve both and do maybe well and do and do maybe badly. Um, I feel like sometimes some people want to say that like one of these is a horror movie and the other one isn't. Well, yeah, one's a thriller. Yeah, and that's a matter, I think, more of taste than anything else, because I think a horror well, movie is defined by whether or not it is about fear. Yeah, I I, uh, I put it this way once. A horror movie is about death. It's mm-hmm. about uh, people being killed. It's about uh, mm-hmm. facing mortality, whereas thrillers are about survival. Yeah. Uh, and There's you, a great area say, Yeah, and, and you might say that, well, that's, that's to use your word, a, a pedantic argument, but I think... Uh, I think that is an important distinction to make where one is about trying to stay alive Mm -hmm. for an extended period. Whereas a horror movie is death is inevitable. There's a a very different philosophy to those two very similar genres. For me, I don't like using the word scary to connote a very particular kind of fear because I don't find the word scary to be particularly evocative of a certain kind of fear. I think scariness... Scariness for little kids. Scariness, yeah. fr- uh, 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 fear, these are general terms 
for the emotions that we feel that you know heighten our anxiety in some way and the scariness of just sort of feeling like unsafe in your seat and you could jump up at any time and the scariness of just not wanting to go to bed because you're worried your house is on it those are all part of a big miasma of terror Mm. um However, we do draw these distinctions because we need to be able to discuss different kinds of fear and the way that we evoke different kinds of fear. So I don't think it's pedantic to say that there is a difference. I do believe that we probably need to come up with more rigidly codified terminology so that there's less confusion about this. Because for me, I don't even think it's pedantic. I think for a lot of people, it's a semantics argument. That's not a horror movie. That's a scary movie. Same fucking... What's the difference that we're getting at here? They're both going to be in the same, you know, section on Netflix. So if, are we getting at something deeper than that? Then yeah, we can have this conversation. But I think generally speaking, they're all uh, uh, part of a piece. As for the thing, I think the thing is both. Mm. I think the thing has a lot of great jump scares. And I think that definitely the defibrillator scene that I described is one of those amazing jump scares. However, I also find that scene in the whole movie, even though I do get a jump out of it, to fill me with dread, because that's the scene, I think, in the movie where I'm just like, there are no fucking rules. Mm-hmm. Anything can fucking happen. The human body is nothing more than, like, meat clay for this fucking creature. <laughs> and I can't trust anyone or anything mm-hmm. anymore. And for me, that the- fills me with dread while I'm jumping in my seat. I, I, so for me, it's both. And I did love the reaction when you see the severed head with the spider legs and it's crawling around. <laughs> and one of, I, I think it's Keith David looks at it and says, oh, you got to be fucking kidding it's, me. It's not Keith David. It's, right. it's um, I think it's Shades or whatever, like the guy with the glasses. But oh, yeah. Right. But yeah, it's, it's but, like, but oh, he's, come he's, on. He's, but he's speaking for the audience because A, that's absurd. And B, holy shit, dude. Like, we can't fucking, we just burned this thing alive. And now yeah. the head's walking away on its own. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> Um, so listen, I think when we when we start taking, um, let's say let's, let's let's take this as a genre argument, horror as a genre. Mm. It's one of like it's one of what I consider like the four prime genres. You know, <laughs> okay. It's like there's drama, there's Bellatar, there's, there's no, there's drama. Mm. You take the movie seriously. There's comedy. You take the movie lightly. Drama is a little broad, but, all but right, I'm, yeah. I'm saying these are the base ones. Like, if you, if you had to, what's the, other than just they're all movies, like, what can you, like, limit yeah. this to? And then you have, I think, uh, horror, which is about sort of negative emotion. Mm-hmm. And then, for lack of a better word, you have pornography, which is just mm-hmm. about eliciting a positive emotion. Maybe it's sexual, maybe it's not. But, like, mm-hmm. it, this is all about feeling. This is all about feeling positive. This is all about feeling negative. This is all about getting immersed in a story and taking it seriously. This is all about getting immersed in a story and not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. But from there on, you break down a variety of different subgenres, and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, mm-hmm. there's dramas that are based on a true story. There's dramas that are based on fiction. Biographies that are about different types of people have different kinds of rules. Different types of horror movies have different kinds of rules, and they get subgenres on top of subgenres. Where werewolf movies, okay, werewolf biker movies, okay, that's a thing too, I guess. And we just keep going down, 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 down. And I think that's really fascinating because this. Genre study, the study of genre, is actually a study of audience expectation. Mm. Where if you want to see a movie because it's in a specific genre, you want to see that movie because you have a general sense of what you're going to get. And the filmmaker should have a sense of what their audience is expecting of this mummy movie, rom-com, 
whatever, werewolf biker movie, whatever you're doing. And they choose to either play into that or defy expectation. And that, for me, I think is really, really fascinating. So I think the conversation is really, really interesting to have. And if you want to divvy that up into, like, the kinds of scares that a horror movie is trying to elicit, that's equally valid. Hmm. Okay, I agree. Okay. Yeah, got, got nothing to add to Sorry, that. Sorry, that's, that's kind of, like... That's kind of my thing. I just I love I love genre studies so much, and I rarely get to discuss it in an abstract. Um, anyway, so that's uh, I guess that's the show. Uh, that's we've got mail. Thank you everybody who wrote in. Uh, you're all awesome, and we really appreciate you. Uh, if we didn't get to your letter, we might next week. So stick around. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address for you to email. Email us. Here right. we are. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And of course, you can go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network for tons of exclusive content. We put out lots of new exclusive podcasts every single week. We have uh, Discord hangouts. We have polls to decide the content of future episodes. Uh, we couldn't do the show without our patrons, so of course we give them a giant shout out uh, because we're especially grateful to them. Thank you to everybody over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and i think that's about it that's about it so thank you everybody and sincerely yours bibs and whitney